Hey there, Biff Bites listeners. This is Adam Scherer from the Biff Crew, and I am delighted to be bringing you today an episode that has been on my mind for quite some time, and I am going to call Questions and Misconceptions. So being an instructor in the Bryant Biff CFP education program and in the Biff Review, uh, I see a whole lot of student questions that come in. And what we learn over time as an instructor team is that a lot of the questions that we see tend to be similar. They're around certain topics. So what I thought that I would do uh, for those considering CFP education, for those within CFP education currently, for those in CFP review for their exam, or for people just interested in personal financial planning matters, I've put together this episode of five observations that I've had as a CFP instructor and describe some of the common questions, offer the proper interpretation, and to just walk through some common pitfalls or misconceptions on the topics that we would present in our program. So today's episode is questions and misconceptions from tax planning. And I have the good fortune of leading the tax planning education course in the Biff Bryant CFP program. And I really enjoy it. It's one of my favorites to teach. And in introducing tax planning, what I'll often do in our first virtual class is I'll just give an overview of the history of the tax system, uh, just some points about the different players that are involved. And ultimately, we're headed towards the Form 1040 tax flow. And this, in my experience, is where the first tax planning misconception often occurs. So one of the cornerstones of the way in which we teach tax planning at BIF using a deductive approach, meaning we start at a very high level, a bird's eye view of tax planning. And then as we progress deeper into the materials, we get more and more refined to the tax specific. And to support that approach, what I'll often remind students in that first class is that by knowing the broader tax flow, you're able to understand where your client is and to identify the planning opportunities that are going to happen in the current tax year and in future tax year. So it is critical for the students in our program to know the broader Form 1040 tax flow. And this is where the first misconception that I've experienced in the classroom occurs. Because what I will pose to the students is I'll say, all right, here's your tax flow. Can you identify the point in the flow at which the marginal tax bracket rates are applied? And I'll instruct the students, just type that answer in your Q&A box. I'll give you a minute. And without fail, it ends up being a toss-up, surprisingly, between AGI and taxable income. So here, we are going to fact check and we're going to set the record straight. The figure on which the marginal rates are applied is taxable income. AGI, adjusted gross income, I think just gets a lot of discussion and coverage in some of the personal finance columns. And it's it's attached to the notorious line, the line, right? Um, and it's very important for a lot of planning purposes. In fact, one of my 
Next points coming up is about AGI specifically, but taxable income is the place and the figure that we take to the marginal tables to figure out the tax that's due. And AGI is a little higher up in that tax flow, adjusted gross income. A very important piece of the tax flow occurs in in between, actually. Those are deductions, which are great, from AGI. And those include the greater of your standard deduction or your itemized deductions on Schedule A. And if you qualify, the QBID, Qualified Business Income Deduction. Those are all below-the-line deductions, and they take us on a journey from AGI all the way down to taxable income. So number one misconception, taxable income is the figure where the marginal tax rates are applied. So there's number one. Number two, we're going to stick with taxable income for a moment, but we're going to switch the perspective on it. One of the great benefits of owning and investing in capital assets is the potential for some favorable tax rates at your capital gains tax rates. And what I've found in class when we get to discussing capital assets and um, netting of capital assets and what is a capital asset versus what is not a capital asset is that people are very familiar with the 0, 15, 20% rate. Um, very well-versed. It seems like that's a point of understanding that's almost universally held in the classroom. Where things get a little fuzzy for people is understanding how to figure out what amount of capital gains are going to fall in which bucket. And the main point that trips them up is that let's say we have $50,000 in capital gains in a given year. We do not just directly take that $50,000 of cap gains and go directly to the cap gains tables for that filing status. The key point that's often misunderstood and left out is that our starting point for figuring out which capital gains rate applies is going to be taxable income. So taxable income actually serves as the floor for us. And upon that, we put our capital gains, and then that is the figure that we bring to the tables to figure out which capital gains rates apply. For those uh, of you that are visual learners, in the BIF review, we have an awesome graphic about this. Uh, That's the way that stuck with me when I learned this originally. But also know that if you're interested in looking deeper, if you go to the instructions for Schedule D, and it's on Schedule D that the netting process is going to occur during your tax flow, there's a worksheet at the very end of it that is going to walk through this process And I think what you're going to see at the top of the page is that the starting point for figuring out what rates apply, rate or rates, right? You could have several cap gains rates if you had quite a bit of uh, capital gains in it. Which ones apply? So take a look at that. That is our fact check number two. Um, Moving onward, we have adjusted gross income. And one of the most common questions, hands down, is around a similar but very, very different in key ways figure called modified adjusted gross income or MAGI. You see, AGI is a figure that is on your individual tax return, uh, Form 1040. And MAGI takes that figure, but it adjusts it 
slightly. And the reason that it's adjusted is that we often will use Magi when we're determining whether or not a taxpayer is eligible for a given deduction or for the ability to take a pool of losses. So just to give you a rundown, I've, I've queued up here the formula for figuring out the modified adjusted gross income for individuals that are considered active participants in real estate, which means they own 10% or more of that piece of real estate and they're substantially significantly involved in the operations, okay? If they are active participants, uh, there's some benefit there because they can use passive losses against actively earned income or portfolio income, which is a huge benefit because normally passive losses are contained within a silo of passive income and you can't use it against those active or portfolio uh, segments. So for these active participants, that's a great benefit. But here's the deal. There are magi limitations, modified adjusted gross income. It's not just AGI. And here's how the Magi is actually calculated for active participants in real estate. Here we go. Ready? Modified adjusted gross income is AGI. So we begin with AGI, but we make the following adjustment, okay? It's figured without any taxable social security, any deductible contributions to IRAs or pension plans, without the exclusion of income interest from U.S. savings bonds used to pay for qualified higher education experiences, uh, expenses. So we're talking there about series EE bonds and the, the interest exclusion. Without the exclusion of income for amounts received from an employer's adoption assistance program, without passive activity income or loss, without any rental real estate loss allowed because you material, materially participated in the rental activity as a real estate professional, without any loss from a PTP or publicly traded partnership, without the deduction allowed for the deductible part of the self-employment tax, without foreign-derived intangible income and global intangible low-taxed income, and finally, without the deduction allowed for interest on student loans. That is MAGI, okay? Now, here's the thing. That is only MAGI for this specific purpose. It's for active participants in real estate. The crazy thing about Magi is that the definition of Magi and what it is changes depending on the deduction or the pool of losses we're talking about. So if we were to pull up on irs.gov, the calculation for Magi for the deductible portion of a traditional IRA contribution, it would look different. And a question I'm sure that is on the mind of every candidate for CFP certification out there is, well, how on earth am I going to memorize this stuff? And the truth is, you're not gonna. Because if you are given the Magi figure on your exam or asked to calculate that, you're just flat out not going to. That's going to be provided for you. Because any tax professional out there, um, unless they are incredibly seasoned or have some crazy photographic memory, are often going to refer to um, this list here, if they're calculating calculating that longhand. Now, a lot of the tax software is going to do this stuff on the back end as well. But MAGI is different from AGI. We basically start with AGI, and we are backing bits and pieces out from that figure to then use that MAGI result to figure out whether a deduction is potentially on the table. Okay, so that's common question 
uh, in tax planning that I always get every time I deliver the course. All right, another one that I think comes up less in the classroom than with clients, and in my case, family members too. Um, we we love in, in our profession, uh, the entrepreneurs that go out there and get their business started. I think there's a lot of value that financial planners can add to individuals that are self-employed or running a small business or a larger business for that matter. Um, what I've found with people that are either receiving income from Form 1099 or um, run their own business and they're self-employed is that there's a lot of confusion around you know, what is deductible. I almost think there's too much emphasis that's put on the deduction as the the end all be all during these conversations. Uh, deductions absolutely help, uh, but they're different. They're different than credits that are available. The deduction is simply going to lower the taxable amount, whereas a credit is going to provide a dollar for dollar offset of uh, taxes that are due. One is not truly better than the other, uh, but I always sense when I'm talking about business deductions with people that there's there's so much attention and emphasis. Is this deductible? Is this deductible? Deductibility does not mean you are not paying taxes. Deductibility simply means that we're we're able to reduce the amount upon which taxes would be applied. So the common questions that I get about uh, business deductions uh, are: Is this deductible? Right. That's a very common one. I had uh, one of these come to my attention, which I I got a kick out of uh, from a family member who has just started a business and was traveling for business and wanted to know if she was able to write off the daycare for her dog while away because she wasn't going to be able to be home in her home office and um, keeping an eye on the dog. And the answer is no. Um, there could be some wiggle room, right? Um, which I asked, you know, is your, your dog involved in is, is it a mascot for your business? Is it involved in your, your advertising? Because uh, then it is actually involved in the purpose of that business and the operation of that business. And that's often at the heart of this business deduction piece is in, in plain terms, in IRS terms, is that expense ordinary in the business? And is it necessary? Ordinary and necessary, but it has to be related to the business uh, and that's where I think a lot of the questions start to arise. So a very, very common question that comes up is I use my car to drive to, uh, this office where I am a 1099 employee. Can I write off all car expenses? And the answer is no, uh, you can't, <laughs> um, especially, first of all, there are rules about using your car and, and commuting costs to get to an office. Um, for the deductibility piece to even be on the table, that employee would first have to go to a home office, not, a, not in their home, but a different office that's theirs for their business. And from there, travel to this office for the company that they're contracting. In that case, that commuting stuff is deductible. Um, but where it starts to really become an issue are people using their car for both business and personal reasons. And in those situations, it just becomes a matter of, all right, our, what's the percentage that we're using here? What type of expenses are we incurring? Um, and it goes even deeper from there. But that's that's an, uh, a question that business deductions in general 
seems to spin off just a whole series of questions around it. But at its core, is this ordinary? Is this necessary? And another piece to this too that I've seen come up lately are for the sake of deductions, people claiming that they do some sort of side hustle. And an important thing to keep in mind there is that the whole idea of having a business and the expectation, honestly, from the IRS is that if you have a business that is an entity that exists to generate profit. So one thing to be really mindful of, if you have some side hustle that you're claiming is, is your profession or side profession, there is something called the hobby loss rules. And what the hobby loss rules say are you, you basically, you, you have to be profitable. Okay. And, and you have to be able to show that there were profit. And the threshold there is, is three out of the last five years. All right. So there, there's some more nuance and really the emphasis is on the details when we get down into these deeper tax matters. And, uh, it just generates a lot of good conversation. I could go on and on about these different scenarios, but business deductions often really open up this whole other line of question. Is this deductible? If I have, you know, if I, if I own a duplex and part of it is rented out part of the year, you know, and you can get into very specific things. The good thing to know is that for CFP exam purposes, for those of you preparing for your exam or in CFP education, that the business deduction stuff is, is not excessively tested. And I think with some foundational blocks and using sense around it, you can navigate through it. And the good thing about review programs is that we're able to really isolate those heavily tested, most testable topics. And you can, you can and should go deeper on those topics and fully understand them. But business deductions, common line of questioning. My last one that I have here is around HSAs. And this is a source of questions, especially in our review program that come up. But also, I've, I've seen some marketing materials out there um, that, that don't have the facts straight and just want to clarify how HSA deductions uh, work. So HSAs are a wonderful thing. We even have a podcast episode from back in the day entitled Mike Loves HSAs. The truth is, we all love HSAs. Health savings accounts are awesome. Uh, there's no income restrictions. You basically just have to have a high deductible healthcare plan, which these days uh, is pretty much most of them, um, to be HSA eligible, eligible. And what they offer are the triple crown of tax efficiency and tax breaks. So you have the option to put pre-tax money into your HSA. So you can have that withdrawn from your paychecks and it goes right into your HSA account. Pre-tax is a benefit. Pre-tax contributions are a benefit because the IRS is saying, we're not taxing you now. Uh, we could potentially tax you down the line. But here's the deal with HSAs. Once it's in the account, your second tax benefit comes to light. And that is you are able, uh, as long as uh, what I've seen with most HSAs is you have to have a certain amount of money invested in the account are placed in the account to then invest it. But you have the ability to invest the money, create a little HSA portfolio, and the gains on there are not going to be taxed year to year. Okay, so you have this little tax deferral benefit. All right, so pre-tax in, tax deferred, awesome. There are other financial instruments and accounts out there that do the same thing though, right? Just think of your traditional IRA. Pre-tax contributions, tax deferred growth. 401k, pre-tax contributions, uh, tax deferred growth. 
The third piece and the thing that makes the HSA account super special from a tax perspective is that when used for qualifying med medical and dental expenses that are unreimbursed, that those distributions are fully tax-free, which is huge because everyone is going to have medical expenses at some point. And to get that tax-free, when you can go pre-tax into the account, have tax-deferred growth, and then no tax on the other end of it is such an enormous benefit. Now, here's where the disconnect occurs. It's actually with the Schedule 1 above-the-line deductions that are available for contributions to HSA accounts. I have seen and I have heard people that believe that you can contribute pre-tax into an HSA and for that same amount, get a tax deduction, an above-the-line Schedule 1 tax deduction. And that is not true. Uh, you see, the people that create these laws that sit up there in Washington, D.C., this is, this is the real deal. They have said that tax deductions are the result of what they call legislative grace. I mean, isn't that special? Legislative grace. It's the good grace and well-intent of our politicians that allows us the benefit of not being taxed on something. So thanks to all on either side of the, you're doing a spectacular. Um, legislative grace, yes. And <laughs> they are not so graceful to give a double tax break. And think about it. If you're getting pre-tax contributions and you're getting an above the line deduction, that is a double tax break in your favor and that ain't happening, okay? So the question often is, well, how does that schedule one above the line deduction work then? The way it works is that's after tax contributions. The money has already been taxed, but you still get a benefit through the HSA because for those amounts that were contributed at, with after tax dollars, you get a tax deduction on Form 1040. Another benefit is that you can contribute up to tax day of the following year and you can backdate it to the year prior, okay? We love HSAs, just wanted to clarify that. That's a, a very common point of confusion with people saying, well, how does that work? You know what you also can't deduct? You cannot deduct on your tax return employer contribution, okay? That's not deductible. The benefit is that your employer is giving you HSA contribution and that's not gonna be considered taxable, right? Uh, but that is, that is not something that you then can deduct in addition for the same reason. So there we have it. That's my first set of CFP common misconceptions and common questions that happen in the CFP classroom. Uh, our hope is to roll out some more of these. We've had plenty of experience in the classroom. We've answered tens of thousands of student questions on CFP topics, and you can't help but see the same questions come up time and time again. If you found this episode to be useful, either as a CFP candidate, someone preparing for their exam, a practitioner, or just someone that really enjoys personal finance and wants to learn more, uh, please let us know. Reach out to the team and we will put together some more content like this. Uh, for the time being, wishing you all a really wonderful holiday season. Expect more great content coming out on Biff Bites, the podcast, and from the Biff crew. Uh, happy Thanksgiving, happy holidays to all. And I look forward to bringing you some more questions and misconceptions very soon. Take good care. Mm -hmm.